0: Crawfish event (laughs) without backup counsel or something. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, good morning. Good morning. Just making sure you're awake. Oh, before we get into the word this morning, uh, we have we have some departures taking place in our midst that we want to commit these folks to prayer. We are grateful for their lives lived among us and the ways in which they have served. God's purpose here, we have a couple that is moving to the North Shore, so not too far away, and we're grateful for that. But uh, Jerry and Cindy Lincoln, where are you guys at? Right here. Uh, They are about to head north on us, Uh, and it's, it's just been a pleasure to have them. As a part of the fellowship, they know so many folks here. They've embedded their lives in so many people. They got married here and discovered God's purpose in marriage here. Uh, Our ministry that many of you have participated in, Christ Cares Cancer Ministry, which is just serving people in a real critical hour of need in their lives, is really something that Cindy has spearheaded for us these last few years and made that possible, so uh, they are they are taking a wealth of gifting and care to another address. So I will pray for them in just a moment. But we also have some folks here who are at least temporarily going to be uh, departing after this Sunday morning and hopefully coming back. And that would be some of our college students who... Uh, by God's grace, have participated in the life of our church. And many of those guys are at Tulane uh, and folks that are part of the bridge. So where are our, our Tulane students, our bridge guys who are getting ready to go home? Let me just see if I can identify. Can you guys stand up for a minute? Yeah, it's been a delight to have these guys with us. It is. I say this for the church, and I say this because I hope this has been the experience for these students. You know, they moved to New Orleans. They, you know, they don't know a lot of folks. They're coming to a new university, a new season of life. And and, and these guys are here just about every Sunday. They're here, and they've been, they've been cared for by the church. They've been prayed for by the church. And, and I hope they've experienced the joy that we have of participating in what God's doing in your lives as you guys are passing through New Orleans for a season. Uh, But they'll be going home for the summer. I think most of them will be. And then we trust they'll be coming back in the fall. But let's just take a moment and pray for them and pray for the Lincolns as the Lord moves them to their next assignment. Father, thank you for your purpose in our lives as we're going to learn today. Lord, you are at work in every moment. Every step that we take, you've already gone before us. Every place that we call home, every address that we live at, Lord, you have had a purpose for that location. And so, God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for the Lincolns, Lord, and the great blessing they have been to us in so many ways and in so many lives here. Lord, they have empowered us to minister effectively to others. And, Lord, they have ministered into our souls as well. Uh, Lord, we want you to accompany them into their new place, a new home, and new church, Lord, and all that you're calling them to be a part of. God, we pray for the richness and the power of your spirit upon their lives. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the bridge students that have made this their home here. Lord, we don't take that lightly. God, the kingdom of God matters. College years matter. Lord, thank you for joining our hearts with theirs as they travel through those years. Lord, thank you for the way in which they have brought joy and life into our midst. And God, we pray for your hand of blessing and grace upon them. And, as they return home, and uh, Lord, you have a purpose for them this summer to fulfill. So God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you open up to the book of Exodus chapter 3, we're going to discover, I, I think the title this morning is, is a lively couple of questions that I think most of us live our lives asking. It's what is God doing And how is he going about doing it? And that's what Exodus is going to allow us to see this morning. I I put this in your outline. Let me just highlight outlines for you for a moment. right? We give out outlines uh, because we just believe that what God imparts in these times when we're together is divinely ordained by God to serve our lives in a particular way. And, and you're like most of us, visiting one time with anything is just not enough for me. I really need to just kind of soak in things these days for it even to come across my consciousness that I engaged it. So um, I would commend that you, you take your outline with you. You make notes in it today. And then you come back at some point and revisit this outline. One of the things I love about seeing is uh, when I walk through my house, uh, somewhere on Monday or Tuesday, I'm going to encounter my wife's Bible and uh, notes. And these notes will be sitting there where she got up one morning and just revisited these things. Now, I, I say that because I'm grateful that I have a wife who pursues God that way. I say that also that you, none of the rest of you have any excuse why you do that. Because this poor woman has to live with me. And she's only been listening to me preach for 20-something years, and and yet she still punishes herself. I mean, she revisits these things again uh, during the week. So I hope you'll do the same, that you'll let God visit with you personally. Make some notes today, but go back and visit with God uh, and see what else he wants to commend to you this week. I keep putting this, this verse in front of you in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because it helps us to rescue the Old Testament from some mystical storyline event that we don't really know what's it got to do with us today. Well, it's got everything to do with us today because it's it's divine stories that God has intentionally preserved for us today, right? So we see in 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul some 1500 years after the events in Exodus says, "Now these things, right? These events in Exodus, they took place as an example for us." Why? That we might not desire evil as they did. Right? So God wrote down these stories because just like their lives, our lives remain in the same condition. You and I can encounter a moment where we're going to desire evil. Right? Remember, evil is just it's the absence of God's purpose. You know, whatever is not of faith is sin, the Bible says. So now, you know, sin and evil is not just uh, what ISIS is doing in the Middle East. Right, sin and evil is whatever you and I do on a daily basis. It's not about faith in the living God. That's how the Bible describes uh, sin and evil. And so we're going to be tempted. And we, we sang a song this morning. That it's a tough song to sing, right? Because there are moments when your life feels like God is slaying you. And how many of you sang that song this morning realizing you you're singing to give God permission to take from you, though you take from me. That's, that feels like something's wrong in that. But, you know, as we study the Bible, we find out something good about God when he does those things. But it just doesn't feel, I don't, I don't you know, anybody tries to, you know, let somebody take something off your plate. I mean, I mean those, are, those are fighting moments. My children could lose a wrist, right? Just don't take my stuff. And God takes from us. Life feels like. We're being ruined, right? And the book of Exodus is filled with God's people living in Egypt for 400-plus years. They, they felt ruined by that. They felt like God has abandoned us and forgotten us. And then they're going to travel out into the desert, and they're going to have some hard times in the transition of going to the next location where they, they, they feel again. What, what is God doing? You know, what, did God, remember this line from Exodus? Did God bring us out here in the desert to kill us? Weren't there enough graves back in Egypt that we could have been buried there? Listen, following God is going to give you opportunities to be tempted to do evil, to, to not have faith toward God. And that's where these passages are so important. These things were written down. So that you and I, by their example, would, would be equipped for the moment when evil seems attractive to us. Now, remember last week, we talked about how God is, is not an absent God. God is active, and he's active all over the place. Right? Our experience is, God, you know, remember, we, I live in this box, God. And I'm very tempted to believe that you're active when I can see your fingerprints in my box. But, but last week, we learned some things. And these are just... These are important things. They're big things, and I hate to just kind of fly through them in a summary moment. But when we find out that Exodus took place, this evil Pharaoh took place so that God's glory might be seen. So you and I can be encountering evil in this world, and our, our natural thinking is if evil comes into my box, it needs to get out immediately. It needs to do no damage to me. I belong to God. God's good. He loves me. So any difficulty and challenge from evil living inside my box has got to be wrong. But, but the Bible teaches us that sometimes evil pharaohs exist so that the glory of God might be seen. Right? Darkness is the backdrop for light. And so God does something in those moments. He's active with his glory being shown. He's got a purpose in that. He's, he's active outside of just my address. We saw last week that God was not only active in the Israelites' lives, but he was active in bringing judgment in another part of the world. So God was preparing to show forth the glory of his righteousness in people's lives who were doing evil in the land of Canaan. And there was coming a day in the exact right time that God's justice would come to them. And then, strangely enough, I I don't want anybody to feel guilty about this, but strangely enough, the Bible says these things were written down as an example for us. Right? And this, is, this wasn't happening, right? And, and it doesn't happen for me. I wish it would. Israelites are living in Egypt in a condition that they call enslavement and difficulty and affliction in their lives. They're not sitting there thinking, God, thank you that, that these events are providing an example to people who live in New Orleans You know, a couple thousand years from now. But according to the Bible, God was doing that. God was not absent. God was active in their lives while he was at the same time being active in ours. So, see, this is where, you know, God lives at a level of management that you and I just don't live in. So we're tempted to say, God, if I can't figure it out, then you're not at work. But yet God is at work. So in this one story, God's at work in in ways that we don't necessarily understand all the time, in people's lives besides our own, and in the future, God was at work, and He's that way today, and so that's helpful for us as we live in this. But it's God being active is about to get really, really noisy for the Israelites here. When we get to chapter three, God's going to come on the scene and He's going to show up and He's going to make a lot of noise. And he's going to start unfolding his agenda. And there's some great stuff for us to learn here. God's at work in a way that helps us figure out what is God doing? what was he doing there and what's he doing here? And how does he go about doing it? Because that's going to help us get on board with God. So let's read Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It's a familiar story to all of us. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, Lord, we do remember this morning, these words are written down for our instruction. Examples of what you are like, how you operate in this world, how you intervene in lives that need your intervention. God, that's us this morning. We need your intervention. We need you to be our God. So open our eyes to see you in this passage that we might have our eyes open to see you in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's your outline there. It says, God's twofold... Plan of action. right? God's taking action. Well, what exactly is God doing when He takes action? Well, look in verse eight. I'm going to just zero in on this. There's a lot of stuff I'm not going to even touch today, but we probably will revisit the bush and who God is and God's introduction to Moses. This wants to pay attention to what God is doing in this passage, so we can pay attention to what God's doing today in our lives too. Well, verse eight. Here's God's twofold plan of action. I have come down, okay, God, why have you done that, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, right? So God's twofold action in this passage is God's twofold action in our lives as well. And I think it's helpful, I think it's helpful sometimes when we read through the scriptures to, to, Identify simple little paradigms that are there that help you and I come up with something that we can just sort of put on like a lens and look at life and see life and see what God's doing. Well, in this passage and in our lives today, God's God's doing two things. He is taking them out of Egypt and he is bringing them somewhere. And we'll find out where exactly that is, but we know he's bringing them into a land. So out of one land into another. I have come down to deliver them out of the land of Egypt and to bring them into something else. And so this is transferable, right? But it helps us. What is God's ultimately doing? What is he ultimately doing when he intervenes in our lives? He steps in. He's going to make a lot of noise here. And he steps into our lives, too. And he makes a lot of noise. And what is he doing in those moments? And how can we cooperate with him? I think this is very helpful for God to write this down so we can figure out, God, how do I get in step with you? How do I cooperate with you? Well, the, the Bible's all over this, pa- this, this paradigm. It's everywhere in Scripture, right? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, 1,500 years after this event in Exodus, the apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Spirit, writes to the people of God and says, speaking of God, him who called you out of darkness into his light, right? 1,500 years later, God is still calling people out of something and calling them into something else. Acts chapter 26, verse 17, God reveals this to the apostle Paul, says, I am sending you. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Exodus chapter 3? Moses, I've come, I'm sending you, right? Well, God's still saying the same thing to the apostle Paul 1,500 years later. I am sending you. Why? Why? to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, right? So 1,500 years later, still the same thing, that you might turn from this to that, that you might come out of this and come into that. And interesting here, because, you know, I think in today's world, there's no hooky spooky left anywhere, right? Everything is scientific. Everything's a molecule, Everything's explainable in in a natural sense. Um, You know, that, that, that needs to get derailed. When you live your life, there are parts of your life that are very, very natural. But I would dare to say, if you'll ponder this for a moment, the things that matter the most to you, the things that torment you the most, the things that in your heart are the most meaningful and the most troubling in your life are not the material things of life. How many of you guys know the difference between uh, a toothache and a heartache? Right? What what do you take for a heartache? You got some medicine out there you can take for a heartache? Take a swig of this. Well, I guess there is some stuff you can take a swig of, and that's what people do, isn't it? (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you give me a choice, you know, bring into my life things that float in the heartache arena, I'll stub my toe any day. I'll I'll hop around the room and grab that little thing and and scream and cry. I will much rather that pain that molecularly can be explained than explain what's going on on the inside when things like fear and anxiety are going on, a broken heart, hopes, hopes. How do we become beings that are so connected to hope, right? Can you, can you do a lab experiment and find hopelessness? Can you? But that means something to you, doesn't it? Being in a state of hopelessness, right? Well, interesting in this passage, God has come to deliver us out of darkness and into light, out of the power of Satan to God. Now, I don't know, maybe you watch too many horror movies growing up, and you've got a devil with a pitchfork and heads that spin around and... Ex- and exorcism movies in your head Uh, there is this thing out there in the universe called the power of satan hollywood has done a great job of making you think it's something that it's not there is a spiritual dimension to your life and whether you've ever studied it or come to understand it there is spiritual powers that influence this world And they're either influenced by the being called Satan or the being called God in different ways. God says, I've come to deliver people out of one domain and into another, right? That's what that next passage in Colossians says. He has delivered us, right? Where do we get that deliverance language from? Well, we get it from Exodus. We get it from the Exodus story, we come to understand why does this story sit in the book of Exodus. So 1,500 years later, people in Colossians could understand what God was doing. He was delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? So former thing, current thing. Thing in the past, thing in the present. God is bringing us out of something and into something else. Now, I don't know if you have that paradigm in your life, but you should as a Christian. At some point in your life, there's this used-to-be element of you, and there's this new element of you. I used to be that, I'm now that. I used to live in Egypt, now I live at another address. And it's pretty important that you can put a finger on that. J.C. Ryle Says, all people born into the world of every rank and nation must have their hearts changed between the cradle and the grave before they can go to heaven. All, all men, without exception, must be. Converted. There must be this transference. There must be this relocation, this event where God steps in and intervenes and takes you out of one condition and he places you in another. Now, now listen, be very careful about what you're hearing me say because in the world of religious activity, it's interesting how religion has become moral teaching rather than transference by the work of God. In the Bible, people get, they get scooped up by God and he lifts them into a new location and he severs ties with the past and he makes a new life for us in his presence. That's not what most religions actually teach, though. Most religions, they're just interested in you going from whatever you are right now to one step of improvement. And then once you arrive at that location, they just want to help you take one more step of improvement. And depending on what the sort of morals of the room are, you know, you know for some people it's, you know, it's smoking and drinking and cursing, you know. We just want you to take one more step away from those things. We just want that to, to get less in your life. And, and you know, maybe some, some nice things toward people. Maybe some better human behavior. Maybe some caring for people at a different level than you once did. And So this is the goal of religion. That, that's not about transference. That's not about conversion. That's about self-improvement. Do you have any idea how many Christian churches today sound like they're hawking self-improvement? Just listen to the messages. Listen to what you're being encouraged to do. Listen to what you're being encouraged to consider. Listen to how much of it has got nothing to do with what God's doing over there or God's glory or something about God. It's got everything to do with you figuring you out and figuring out how to take this one more better step for you. This is what I call installing the Your Best Life Now app, right? That's, that's, I don't mean to be picking on the guy who wrote this book, but it, it's a little telling because it, it features some things that your is, is not always a good word. In your best life, and that's an interesting thing. How do you define your best life? Where are you getting the data for that idea? Your best life now. And, and supposedly God's in that equation, right? So we install this app. Our view of religion, our view of Christianity is somehow my life, my life, the one I've got is going to get better. My best life. I can improve this thing. Right? Well, I, you know, I don't know how you apply that. Maybe... You're in different places at different times. I got saved as a teenager. Right, so I came to Christ in a, in a season of life. and My eyes were opened by God's grace. But, you know, my best life then was a teenager. Right, so, God, if you're going to get involved in my life and give me my best life now, uh, it's going to improve my basketball game. Uh, I'm going to be less insecure about fitting in with friends and peers. That's going to be a real priority. I'm going to be popular at some level. Um, you know, my, I'm, I'm going to probably gain a little bit of weight. I was a skinny teenager. I would have liked to have been a little heavier for a, a bunch of reasons. I'm going to be more attractive. I'm going to have more confidence. Right? I want my best life now as a teenager. Right? Now, maybe you didn't come to Christ as a teenager. Right? Maybe you came to Christ in your 20s. Your 30s. So at that point, what, what, what's your best life then? Well, your best life in 20s and 30s maybe, I'd like a career to take off. I'd like to be my own boss. I'd like to have my own business. I'd like for it to flourish at some point. I'd like to be married. Uh, I'd like to have X amount of dollars and live in a certain type of a house, et cetera, et cetera. I want my best life now. I want God to come into my life and give me my best life now. Or, you know, most of us here are from America, so our best life now involves interesting names, names that most of us would have never known if we weren't introduced to people like Michael Kors uh, and Vera Bradley. I mean, who knew how much we needed uh, them in our lives? And Pottery Barn, you know, my best life now involves Pottery Barn and a BMW. It just, that's my best life now. And so, that's my value system. These are the things, whether I'm a teenager in my 20s or I just live in America, this is what life is about for me. So what is God doing and how can I cooperate? Well, God's trying to give me my best life now. It's my best life's a moving target. You know, Hopefully I'm not 51 years old still trying to get God to, to make me popular with the girls. You know, It wouldn't be good for my wife. Right? But that's what I wanted when I was a teenager. I wanted, that, that needed to work. I could use a little more basketball game. That probably could still work for me. But you know, life has changed. Life's moved on into other categories. And yet, yet God's up to something. right? God's doing something in this world. It may not just be in my best life category. Well, what's he doing? Well, step number one in what he's doing in this passage is God's getting them out of Egypt. I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, out of that land. Interesting, when God says, I'm intervening, I've heard their condition, he doesn't show up and give them an option. He doesn't say, hey, you guys want to build here? You want, you want some new real estate? You, you like it here? Hey, your best life now, then. Let's just go to work here in Egypt. Uh, notice that God's intention is for them to come out of Egypt in order to enter into what he has for them. That's significant. That's significant because it's it's disruptive in our lives in a way that too many of us don't value. God wants to show up in our lives and disrupt things that we've gotten comfortable with, disrupt things that are meaningful to us, disrupt things that are familiar to us. Yeah, Christianity begins with a very, very valuable word. It sounds like a, a not-so-valuable word or a difficult word, but it's a very valuable word. It's the word repentance. Jesus introduced the kingdom of God with that word. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? This concept of turning from something to something else, Right, it's God everywhere in the scriptures. And it's critical if you and I are going to ever cooperate with God, we need to learn something about repenting, of taking that which we have grown accustomed to and put value in and turning our back on it and finding something else more valuable. That's what they were called to do in Egypt. Now, I know for us, here's the challenge. I think I'll put this in your outline. We are too often trying to get God to build his kingdom in our Egypt rather than departing our Egypt in order to enter his promised land. Because like it or not, all of us have installed this app in our lives. We want our best life now. We we don't always want God's glorious purpose now. So 400 plus years in Egypt was about God's glorious purpose. It stopped being their best pretty quickly when they entered Egypt, didn't it? but it was still serving God's glorious purpose. See, your your life can feel difficult, yet still be fulfilling God's glorious purpose. But if I've installed the app that God needs to be at work giving me my best life now, then everything's gotta get comfortable, everything's gotta be reassuring, everything's gotta feel secure, and nothing can feel risky and challenging, it can't require any faith in my life. But that's that's not God's plan. Look at, what, look at how Moses responded to this. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. These these are some strong action words. Moses is, he's thinking something here. He's got an active value sense about him, which I don't know if we have enough of. He refused something. He chose rather something else. He considered something. He was looking to something. He saw where God was taking him, so valuable that he was willing to turn his back to Egypt and pursue what God had somewhere else. Now, for Moses, Egypt was a pretty attractive place, right? There in your outline, Moses had a pleasurable Egyptian future. Wealth, power, influence, ease, protection, security. Who who wouldn't want these things? Isn't this what we stay up late at night trying to figure out how to have? We can't fall asleep because one of those things got threatened This guy's got it. Moses, you're set for life, man. You're in with the in people. You've got a name. You're connected to the right family. You get all this stuff. And he refused them. He chose instead. This guy chose a material downgrade and a spiritual upgrade. I choose to be a slave. I choose to stick my feet in brick pits. I I choose to give up on those things in order to have this in its place. He chose a different form of riches. Now, I mean, let me say something, because I, I, this doesn't exist strongly enough in our lives. We come to know something about God and we take so much of our Egypt with us and we ask God to just figure out how to make it work for us. How to make it better for us. So right now, in, in, in the spiritual sense of your life, if you, if you look up into the rearview mirror of your life, If you don't see stuff like this in the rearview mirror, increasingly becoming more and more distant from your life, I got to say this, you're probably not a Christian. If you don't have a paradigm in your life that encountering the living God, God shows up at the doorstep of your life, and something or numerous things become distant things in the past, and you press on with value for something else, if that simple paradigm is not observable in your life, then you're probably not following God. God showed up. Maybe he showed up with fireworks. Maybe he did something amazing in your life. Maybe there was some desperate moment where God did a miracle for you. But if there's nothing in the mirror that just keeps fading farther and farther behind you, and there's not something new that occupies where you're headed, then you're probably not following God. It's really that simple. When when we start following God, we we, we get a whole new identity about our lives. We get defined by something new. And, you know, I'd explain this to you, but if you've really encountered God, it it sort of explains itself to you. I don't want to overdo this and say, okay, now take your right foot and put it here. Okay, all you Christians, now take your left foot and put it here. If I don't ever say this to you, there's something about the Spirit of God who will say it to you. That you begin to no longer want those former things and identify with something more valuable over here. And your life begins to be moved by those things. And God says, walk out into the desert where you have no idea how your needs are going to get met. And you don't have any idea how to do life over there. And something in you says, yeah, I'm going to do that. That do not make a whole lot of sense, right? These people weren't idiots. You ever seen pictures of the desert? It's a desert. <laughs> it's not like a desert with McDonald's every hundred miles. It's a, it's a desert. And yet they were gonna walk out into that and follow God. And and if you and I can't identify those things, I can remember for I came to Christ as a teenager. I had one value system operating in me. That value system, before I knew Christ, it was looking for popularity a certain way. It was looking for fun in certain categories. It was looking for a thrill. It was looking to find certain things meaningful. And because that's how I felt about life, I surrounded myself with certain activities and certain people. It just makes sense, right? People who can participate with me in having this best life now are welcomed in my life. And we'll spend time together. We'll build relationships We'll tell jokes. We'll have history together, et cetera. And then I met Christ, and every one of those categories got turned upside down. Fun got a new label for me. Thrill got a new label for me. Fulfillment was a totally different category for me. Meaningful life was a totally different experience for me at that point, which meant whatever I was doing before started becoming rearview mirror stuff. Not because somebody came along and said, you know, if you want to be holy, you're going to have to stop doing this and stop doing that. and There was something that went off inside of me. I wanted that God and I wanted to be near him and I wanted to follow him. That's all I knew. I was a teenager, right? You got teenagers in your world? I was one of them. Just pick the Bible up. But it dislodged the practices of my life that were part of creating this world. It it changed the relationships in my life. The people that were so close to me no longer could connect with me at the deepest level of who I was. I didn't didn't make that happen. Look, these were people that I had some level of friendship with. I enjoyed a lot of things about them and enjoyed a lot of doing things with them, but all of a sudden I found that I can't connect with you at the deepest level of who I am. There's nothing in you that I can connect with. And so for years, I would bump into people that I had history with, but I didn't have this sense of spiritual connection with them. I had friends I went to college with that, you know, we spent a lot of time together. We did classwork. We did all kinds of assignments together. We went through engineering school together. And I could only connect at a certain level with them. There was something deeper about who I was and who they were. I couldn't connect with them because God had done something different in my life. Listen, if if you don't have this kind of work in your life, this, this is why in the world of religion, things like racism still exists. Because you haven't been redefined as a person. When you get redefined as a person and this God becomes your God, all your allegiances transfer to him. And everybody who belongs to him belongs to you now. And you know that in your heart. I've used this example before. Make sure Rufus isn't sleeping. Uh, that young man right there, Rufus. Uh, hey, Rufus waved at everybody so they know who I'm talking about here. That's Rufus. Uh, there, I, I have a connection with, with Rufus. He's from a different culture, he's lived his life in different settings grew up in Latin America, has lived amongst the African-American community here in New Orleans. We don't share the same natural background, right? And there are people that I share a lot of natural history with that I've done all kinds of things growing up with. Can I tell you, I can connect with that man more deeply than I can connect with some people who have been in my life my whole life. Because I know they don't get me and I don't get them, but I get that man. When he talks about his family, when he talks about his life, I know that inside of him there's this celebration of the glory of God taking place. That he's celebrating God at work in his daughter's life and in his family. I, I can go there. I can participate in that because I left Egypt to follow the same God that that man follows. So listen, it doesn't matter what color he is. He belongs to God the same way I belong to God. Now, listen, if you don't have that in your life and you're just one big happy app trying to go from one happy address to another one, you know, well, you identify with people very differently because you don't know what it really is to belong to God. Listen, repentance and turning from Egypt's got a lot of great benefits in it. It sounds like, oh, I don't know if I want to give this stuff up, you know. Well, then you're not like Moses here. Moses was looking to the reward, and God quickly advertises the reward. I've come to liberate you and take you out of Egypt into something better, a land flowing with milk and honey. So from the get-go, God says, I've got something better for you than what you've had all this time. And that's what God's doing. Listen, remember what Egypt was. It's this place of foreign control, misery, There's no future in Egypt except further enslavement. But we'll pick this up in several weeks. At some point, they get out of Egypt, wander through the desert on their way to another location, and freak out. Exodus chapter 16. And they want to go back to Egypt. Do you guys remember this story? You got a good enough picture of Egypt to really scratch your head on that one now? It's like, what on earth is wrong with you people? We could probably ask that about a lot of stuff like that in our lives. There is something about us that loves misery. <laughs> and some of you really, really love misery. Matter of fact, you don't even know how to function without misery being part of what you're doing. You know what I'm talking about? Well, you get around certain people, you can't be with them for three minutes until they've pulled out their misery portfolio. You know, like one thing, this is how, and then this happened, and then the aunt, so-and-so, and, and it's like, oh my gosh, that just comes to, to mind just like that for you. That's amazing. But what is it about us that, that we have this love-hate relationship with misery? There are people who live in the land of Egypt, and their Egypt is uh, drug and alcohol abuse. That's their land. It's controlling. It's domineering. It's miserable. It's destroying their lives. Every relationship is, is about to fall apart if it hasn't already there's distrust, there's disappointment, there's heartache, there's loss, there's a lack of moving forward in life. It's a miserable, miserable existence. Yet there's this strange love for it, isn't it? For people who give themselves in that category. They hate Egypt and they love Egypt all at the same time. Years ago, there was a terminology for relationships, they'd call relationships codependent relationships. They don't use that as much anymore, but codependent relationships typically were just unhealthy, dysfunctional relationships where somebody was controlling somebody else, somebody was sort of using someone else for their own end, and it was just an unhealthy environment. You know, often women would be abused and mistreated and neglected, and and yet, as much as they hated it, they'd go back for more, Right? just a strange connection. You know, if you're you're here and you've got a history of laziness in your life, laziness is that way too. People who are lazy hate their lives on the one hand, because they know. They, They know their life is never what it could be. At some point, they get irritated and agitated by living in the less of what their life constantly creates. But at the same time, there's just something attractive about laziness, isn't it? I hate Egypt, but I'll go back there next morning when I wake up, right? That's sort of the nature of this. But how great is God that he delivers us out of that land. He wants us to turn from that land, and this is the next thing he does, to enter into a new land. In verse 8 he says, I have come down to deliver them to a good and broad land. God has come to deliver them to something. So in, in God's purpose, what is God doing in your life? Well, he's trying to take you out of something and bring you into something else. Now, can I just say this? Maybe find out where you are in this event. This is God's purpose. Question, are, are you cooperating with God's purpose? Because I find way too many Christians, they, they haven't entered into very much. They know the taboos of the Christian life. They know not to do this, not to go there, got to avoid this. They've cleaned up some things in their act but they haven't moved into a whole lot. They're not deep with God. They've not experienced God in amazing ways. This land flowing with milk and honey, it's not something they know much of, tasting it personally. Listen, God's plan has never been some no man's land existence where you stop doing some things from your former life, but you didn't enter into much either. That's not... What God had in mind. What is God doing and how can you cooperate? Well, he's taking you out of something in order to bring you into something else. Now, I won't won't pick up on this in detail. We'll come back to it. But be clear, that something else is really a someone else. This is not just about land. This is about God bringing us to himself. When they come out of Egypt, you guys remember the story, and it's important that we follow it. Out of Egypt, into the desert, not to Canaan. They don't go to the promised land. They go to the mountain of God. They go to meet God. They go to marry God in a covenant with him. First order of business when God takes you out of Egypt is to bring you to himself. It's not just to give you another land where he sits at a distance and you don't know him any better now than you did when you were in Egypt. And now you're in a new land. And it's got all kinds of gadgets and cool stuff. But you don't know God. God's purpose is to bring you to himself. That's what God was doing. You remember even when the Abraham gets these promises from God and he departs from his land looking for this land. He says he went out not knowing where he was going but he was looking for the city whose builder and architect is God. He was looking for the place where God dwells. That's where Abraham wanted to go. All right, my question, is that where you want to go? Has God become so cherished and so valuable and so personal and so real in your life that you don't mind lots of stuff in the rearview mirror because I want to be where he is. I want to experience who he is. I'm up and relocating because... I'm following God. I want to be with God. All right, now if we're going to cooperate with this, let me just make this last point. How is God doing this? This is what God's doing, right? Two-step. Take you out of Egypt, take you into a relationship with him in this new land. That's what God's doing. That's what God's doing then. That's what God God is doing today here in Kenner and Metairie and New Orleans and wherever it is that you are doing life. God is still doing that. Now, the question is, how is he going about doing that? Because if you miss this, you might miss the first part as well. Probably actually will. How is God doing that? Verse 8 and verse 10. God says, I have come down to deliver them. I will send you to bring my people. God, how are you going to do that? You're going to bring people out of Egypt into this other purpose? That's exactly what I'm going to do. Moses, go and get them. You go get them. Wait, what, me? And we'll we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. Moses isn't too keen on this idea. But what, what screams out at us is when God moves in people's lives, he uses people to do it. He uses human agency. So there is a realm in which if you are looking to get involved with who God is and what God's doing in your life, then you might need to lift your eyes and find a Moses To figure out who is God using in my life to get me from here to here. Now listen, this is nothing new. This this shouldn't be like, oh, well that's that rare event in scripture. No, no, no. This is everywhere. A.W. Tozer says, every notable advance in the saving work of God among men will, if examined, be found to have two factors present. First one is several converging lines of providential circumstances, right? God is at work in your life in ways that you don't necessarily even see And secondly, a person. You want to find God in your life? He's put his hands on somebody, and he's put that somebody into your life. That's what he did with these Israelites. I've come down to rescue them and to bring them into a good land. Moses, go and do this. There's people in your life for a reason, and that's God all over the place, right? God creates the earth. He puts man in it to subdue it and manage it. Adam and Eve are given this unique role in God's creation. God's got something to do. He gives it to Adam and Eve. God steps into a world that's gone wicked all over the place. Their hearts are evil constantly. God steps in with judgment, but he wants to preserve his work and have a remnant on the earth that he will bless. And what does he do? He reaches for a man named Noah. He says, Noah, you're going to do this. When God's people go wayward, and they do, and God wants to reach out to them and communicate his purpose back into their lives, he reaches for a man named Isaiah and calls Isaiah to go in his name. When God wants to challenge the most powerful ruler in the world, the most powerful nation in the world, God sends a man with a stick in his hand named Moses. When God moves, he raises up people. Now, this is interesting. And... and, This needs to inform us, right? These things are written down for us, for our instruction. They inform us about our own lives here, right? I think I wrote this out in your outline. God chooses to be strangely slowed down by the pace at which Noah can build an ark. I mean, how do you guys know that God could have done this different? I mean, hello. I mean, God raises the dead. God performs miracles. God could have killed everybody and then raised Noah back from the dead, right? I'm going to drown them all and then I'm going to just raise Noah from the dead. It'll be a cool experiment in raising people from the dead. I can do that. Raise his family up. Instead, there's this strange pace of things. This man and his family are going to build this gigantic boat for a hundred years. They're going to work on this boat. Okay, listen, you know, do you get in touch with the thought sometime that, you know, God, why have you got me involved in some of these things? God, do you have any idea? I ask this question a lot. God, do you have any idea how much I'm slowing you down? (laughs) I mean, in every aspect of life. Like, God, my wife could be a lot farther along, Lord, if if I weren't slowing you down so bad. God knows my kids, the church, Lord, everything about my life. Lord, why do you have me involved with this? I'm just slow. And yet, that is God's way. Noah shows up. How about Isaiah? He chooses an Isaiah to be his spokesman. I love this, which, by the way, that's about all Isaiah is going to do, is speak for God. You do remember that at the end of Isaiah's ministry, there's no revival. He preached effective messages, and no one responded. He's the spokesman for God. That's what he is. And immediately when God drafts him into the situation, the one thing Isaiah says he's not qualified to do is to speak. God, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. God, the one problem I've got that I can be aware of is my mouth is unclean. Now, I don't think that meant curse words like a sailor. It meant a whole lot of things about the condition of what was communicated through his life. And yet the very person God picks up is to speak on his behalf and to move is a man who was unclean in his lips. And then God chooses to partner with a man of self-doubt in Moses in a task of liberation that would take tenacity and unintimidated steadfastness. Right? We're not going to get out of chapter 3 when Moses is trying to talk God out of this deal. I'm not the right guy. I can't do this. I can't think on my feet. I'm not eloquent with my words. God, this is not going to work. I mean, God's showing him powerful stuff, and Moses is still so convinced he can't do this that he continues to try and talk God out of it. Now, wouldn't you think the one thing you need to go confront the Pharaoh, the baddest dude on the planet, with an army who's not going to want to let anybody go he doesn't want to bend his knee to anybody. This guy is the arrogant ruler of the world. He thinks he's God himself. Don't come speak to me on behalf of God. I am God, Pharaoh's going to say to Moses. And you're going to pick Moses who doesn't really want to go? I mean, shouldn't you pick some gunslinger personality? He's saying, yeah, God, bring it, man. You and me are going to bring it. Going to Egypt. <laughs> Kick some butt, baby. I'm here on behalf of God, Pharaoh. Come on. say have some words. That's not Moses. And yet that's God's chosen man. Right? This, this, is, this is helpful, right? Because you're chosen to do some things in this world. And you're probably like me. You're, you're convinced that you can't do them. And so you're wondering, did God make a mistake? Or did I even not even know God at all in this? Or did God really choose you to do the things that he's called you to do? These things are written down for us, right? Think about this. God calls leaders to be his agency of change and renewal in extraordinary moments. This is an extraordinary moment. There are several places in Scripture where this is an extraordinary historic event. God is looking to make history. He reaches in and grabs a man. He doesn't say, hey, you know what, this is a big moment. I think I'm going to have to do this one myself. Even in the big moments, God chooses a man. All right, well, then God calls leaders to be influential in everyday ways as well, right? Every day of our lives is not some giant exodus event, is it? Matter of fact, most days are not. But God still calls leaders in places like the church and the family and government and and in commerce where God's calling. He's going to move and he's going to raise up somebody in that setting. God ordains that everyday roles are to be his agency of leadership and care. God ordains that, right? So husbands, fathers, there's, there's a God-ordained, God is about to move in people's lives and he's going to pick you up like a Moses and get your attention and stick you in the middle of that and you're his means of intervening in that situation to bring about movement and change. And listen, this is true for mothers in your homes. Don't underestimate that God hasn't put his hand on you to move those little people from here to over there. To come out of this and to come into this. This is is a lesson to learn, right? This is how God operates in this world. And, And hold on to this because you read the rest of Exodus and we'll come back into this chapter a little bit. It, it sure seems to matter whether Moses responds or not, right? Now you guys know if you, if you listen to us preach, we clearly believe that the accent in the Scripture, the emphasis of the Bible is on God. This is a book about God. This is a universe that exists to display things about God. We do not believe in, a, in humans trumping God. God trumps everything. God can do whatsoever he will at any moment. You know, please don't create some goofy theology where God picks up rocks so big that he can't pick them up. He creates rocks too big to pick up, etc. God can do whatever he wants to do. But when we come to passages, we have to be honest with passages, that there seem as though in these moments, whether you call it God choosing to do it this way or however you deal with it, it seems to matter what human beings do in some of these places. Moses wants out of this deal. I gotta, yeah, God, that sounds like a really cool idea. I'm sure the people over there in Egypt would appreciate you showing up, but I'm not the guy. I got a better idea. How about laser beams from heaven? You know, there's, there's no other way here that's going to be considered. Even when Moses just tries to go with the idea, how about you just find somebody besides me? No, Moses, that's not going to happen it seems to matter that if God picks your life up and speaks to you at a burning bush and sends you into a situation, whether it's a family, whether it's a church, whether it's something that God's called you to do in the community, if God's spoke to you from a burning bush and sent you, it matters whether you go. Stop treating whatever your doctrine of sovereignty and providential activity is. Stop treating human actions like they don't matter. Whatever the Bible's trying to say when it says that God can do whatever he wants when he wants, and no one can stay his hand. Whatever it's trying to say in that sentence, it's not trying to say it doesn't matter what you do. Moses, ain't no other option here, dude. You're going, and God sticks with that. Let me just give you a couple of principles here before we pray. Principles apply. What Moses is to Israel in Egypt, pastors are to churches. Covenant group leaders are to small groups. VBS teachers are to their students. Dads are to their families say this for our young people, because this really does matter. Friends are to your posse. Whoever your people are, you're, you're, you're in that setting for a reason. And, and I've never been in a setting with a group of people where somebody's not a leader in it. Those settings don't exist. Somebody emerges always. Stick three people in a gathering, somebody has an advantage to lead in that moment. Listen, if you're one of those people, you might need to pay attention that God has you there so that these people can move out of this and into this. Because that's what God's doing. Well, I've got to wonder, what's God up to? Listen, this is what God's doing. He may have some particular details. Your name might be associated with it in unique ways. But what is God doing today? It's the same thing he's always done. He's bringing people out of this and into this. And if you're involved with that, then you're involved with bringing people out of this and into this. If you're a small group leader here, you're bringing people out of this and into this. If you're a VBS teacher getting ready to teach this summer, you're going to be bringing a bunch of little kids out of this and into this. And your God-ordained means to do that. God's placed you in that setting. One more thought. If you're on the receiving end of, of this ministry, as the people needed to appropriately look to Moses. God designed this thing that they were going to look to Moses in order to connect with what God was doing. They needed to appropriately look to Moses if they wanted to get connected with what God was doing. There are God's appointed movers to whom we are to appropriately look in order to be connected with what God is doing. Listen, one of the reasons why you may feel really disconnected from God's purpose is you haven't realized that this is how God operates. God's operating through people. God's plan in your life, it's true for everybody in this room, is to move you from this address to that one. That's what God's doing in everybody's life here today. God wants to move you from Egypt into a relationship with him to live in his promises. That's what he's doing everywhere. Now God's doing that through people. Who are the people in your life through which God is seeking to use them to move you from here to there? More than likely, that started with your parents, children. Your parents are in your life to move you from here to there. That's, that's why they're there. Now, now listen, I know they, they dress funny. They, they don't use the right lingo. They're embarrassing to be with, with your friends. Uh, And that's really tempting because what you do with that is you jettison who they are in order to welcome people who dress the way you do and speak cool language and know what app means what. And you welcome them into your life. But can I just tell you, those people, for the most part, I almost can guarantee you this, they're not going anywhere. And they're definitely not helping you to move from this address to that one. God's put your parents in your life to do that. To move you from here to over here. Right? If you're if you're in the church, you're a church member. Uh, this is awkward to say as a pastor, but you know, Moses has got to speak on behalf of himself sometimes too as he speaks to his people. If you're a member of a church, and and by the way, if you think you're a member of the church and somebody bumps into you, because I do this to people all the time, and they tell me they go to XYZ church and I ask them, Oh, well well tell me a little bit about the church. So who's the pastor over there? And they stumble and think and uh um his name? What's his name? I can tell you right now, you might think you're a member of that church. You might be on paper a member of that church. You are not a member of that church. Because you don't look to God's appointed people to do anything in your life. So you might sit in a chair. That doesn't make you a member of a church. Right? So if you're a part of a church, God is assigned. Right? And this is, To me, what what this This pulpit represents as we gather together. Is is this my job is to go find burning bushes during the week. Get around God and listen to God say something to me. And then come back here and just tell you about it. That's the biggest part of what I do. That's the biggest part of my job. Get around God. Find the burning bush moments where God wants to say something to me about what he's doing in God's people's lives. And then I just show up here on Sunday morning and figure out how to write it down so it'll make sense and tell it back to you. And so God has tucked away in these Moses-type people in our lives, burning bush content. If you, if you don't hear Moses come and tell you, hey, guys, start packing. There's going to be a lot of fireworks, some really cool stuff, and then we're out of here. If you don't hear that from Moses, guess what, children of Israel, you don't hear it at all. Because that's how God chose to communicate it to them. Now, thank God today we all have the Spirit of God living in us. But it's interesting that, you know, I read this verse to you earlier. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul is given a Moses-like task, even in the day of the Spirit? Hey, Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. God is still using people in our lives. So you, you may be detached. I don't know what God's doing in my life. Well, who are the movers in your life? Who are the people that are supposed to be giving you something that's gonna move you from this address to that address? Make sure that's intact in a healthy way. All right, let me bring us to this last question. Eric, you can come back up here, buddy. Question for us today, what is God doing, and how is he doing it in your life? That passage in Acts chapter 26 is pretty helpful. What is God doing? Paul, I am sending you to people to open their eyes that's an awesome concept. And this is what it implies. It implies that right up until that moment where God comes and delivers, because that's what happens in Egypt, right? God comes and they don't self-deliver. God doesn't send them a postcard saying, hey, guys, work it out. I'll, be, I'll meet you at Sinai. God delivers them. And God delivers us. God opens eyes. You, you don't get the ability to open your own eyes God opens them which means this is a strange thing and if you if you've encountered God this way you know exactly what I'm talking about you live your life in this sense of darkness and you grope around you try and make life to make sense you got some religious stuff going on in your world might stick your foot in church from time to time but then something different happens and your eyes get open, and all of a sudden the Bible comes to life. And everything you've heard makes sense. And this God who before, I mean just, just not too long before, you weren't even sure even existed. Poop! your eyes open up and you know this God is real. And something goes off in your heart. What, what is that? It's God suddenly delivering you out of what you once were. Can I just say this to you this morning? You you can be sitting here today. Uh, now, your eyes don't open because I tell them to open. So I can't have a moment here, okay? At the count of three, <laughs> I'm going to open your eyes. Okay, I don't have that power. Those eyes open because the Spirit of God cracks them open and light comes in. And what's been a mystery to you all these years, what's made no sense to you, all of a sudden, just sense to me. I get that. Listen, this is, this is what God was doing in Egypt. Remember, these things are written down for us. God was stepping into the darkness of men's lives mm-hmm. to deliver them out of that darkness, to bring them into a relationship with him. That story was an illustration of another story. These story of all the Bible. The Exodus story isn't the story of all the Bible, it's an illustration of the story. The story was the day that God stepped into humanity in the form of a man named Jesus Christ. And he came into the darkness, the Bible says, to take us out of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what God was doing, opening our eyes and maybe this morning for you, opening your eyes to see that's what Christianity is. That's what it means to know God. Listen, I hope, please, please don't leave this church thinking, hey, I went to this church today and it taught me how to take one more step in me being better. No, no, no I hope you, please, I hope you didn't hear that. I don't mean this ugly towards the people that I love the most in the world here in this church. There's some really nasty people in this room. There just are. I'm one of them. Christianity is not about less nasty people all getting together. Christianity is about a gracious God who stepped into our darkness. And he said, out of Egypt, I'm going to transfer you out of that, out of the misery and the control and the enslavement, and I'm going to take you into my kingdom, and you're going to be mine. You're going to belong to me. It's God bringing us to himself, not self-improvement. It's coming to God. So listen, if right now you're sitting here, you're saying, I get it. My eyes are open. I get it. And I've literally had people say that. I get that. (laughs) Because God opens your eyes to see it. And so if you're here this morning, I want to pray with you. If God's opening your eyes, I want to just give you an opportunity to respond to God this morning. Let's maybe all of us just bow our heads for a moment and let, let God be at work here in this room. Whatever land you have been living in, whatever place of difficulty and affliction, no matter how long, there's a God who today is at work in exactly the same way as he's always been at work. He's come to take you out of that darkness and to bring you into his light, to bring you into his presence, to bring you into a relationship with him. That's why the story of Jesus Christ is there Because he came to rescue us out of darkness and to bring us into relationship with him. Well, knowing that, how, how do you respond? Well, in the Egypt story, they picked their lives up. They turned from their familiar surroundings, even their places of security, and they followed God. They put all their hope in God and followed him. And this morning, God calls men and women to do the same thing today. To turn from your own life, its own way, the way you've tried to make it work, the goals you have, the the things you want for yourself, to turn to the God who created you for him. He made you for him. This morning, if you'll repent, that's a good word. Turn away from Do in life your own way. And turn to God. Put your faith in him. Jesus Christ came to bring you back to God. To forgive your sins. And to give life to you that only he could give. And he comes to you just like Moses came to these folks. God's come to you today and he's using a person standing in front of this building to speak a message to you that he wants you to come home to him. He wants you to give your life to him. Trust him. Follow him from now on. And if you want to do that, tell God you want to do that. Tell God right now. Your eyes are open. You know that God's here somehow. Tell him just in your own heart to say, God, I want that this morning. I want to turn, God, from doing life my own way I want to turn to following you. I want to turn to putting my trust in you, in what Jesus Christ did to forgive my sins and restore me to God. Today, I believe that. And I put my trust in this God. And and I will follow you from this day forward. God, I want you. I want you in my life. Come. Come be my God today. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, as simple as that was, God has opened your eyes to put your trust in him. I just want to pray for you. Let me just ask you, bow your heads just one more moment. Let me just pray for you if that's what you've just done. If you prayed that prayer this morning, you spoke to God about that, I just, can you just raise your hand for a second and let me know you did that? Several hands all over the place. Well, Lord, you see these folks who have raised their hands, Lord, turning to you. God, that's that's what these Israelites had to do, Lord. They had to trust that you could take them out of their situation, that you could overcome the, the gravitational forces that were in place in their life, and that you could provide for them in a new way, in a new place, at a different time. Well, God, that's what's happening here this morning. Lord, these folks have honored you with their trust. They've turned from life their own way and they've said, Lord, the future is in your hands. I will follow you. And Lord, I trust that from this day forward, God, you will take them by the hand. As you, as you took me by the hand those many years ago and many things, Lord, began to be in the rearview mirror as a new life came from you. So God, bring this new life into these lives today. Jesus name amen let's stand up and close with this song Eric's going to lead us in
1: the depths of your grace who can measure. You fully supply all I need. You restore my weary soul again and again. And lead me in your righteousness and peace. You're with me through every dark valley. There's nothing that I have to fear you are there to comfort me again and again protecting me assuring me Yes, Lord. Oh not only be living in a, in a world where we've been transformed from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, God, but we will be forever with you. Lord, not having to struggle, not having to strain to see, God, but having our eyes fully opened, dwelling with you in fullness, God. We long for that day. God, help us to trust you this week. Help us to live in light the rescue that you've performed on us, God. We are yours. Lord, help us to live that way this week, we pray. In your son's name, amen.